Hello and welcome to A History of the United States. Episode 58, Carolina in my mind. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. We have no advertisers or corporate backer. If you want to support the show, please consider signing up for membership. You can do that by going to the website and clicking on the PayPal subscription button. It costs only $4.99 per month and gives you access to the premium feed with a new episode every two weeks. Special thanks to our newest pioneers, listeners Melinda and Hazel. Thank you. I couldn't do the show without you. Last time, we turned back to the South for the first time since the early episodes. We went over the history of early English and Spanish exploration into North America, and briefly went over Roanoke Colony, before covering the creation of the province of Carolina in 1628 by King Charles I of England. Carolina was made up of the land south of Virginia, what had been known as Old Virginia, between 31 degrees and 36 degrees latitude north. It was a province, but it was to be held by a sole proprietor, Sir Robert Heath, the Attorney General. This was where we left things. Heath had a huge tract of land, and his first issue would be finding people to settle that land. This was problematic. Carolina would suffer the same problems as New York would later in the century. There was very little reason for people to go there. If people wanted to travel to the south, to be farmers, then they would travel to Virginia, by far the largest and most powerful colony. If they were Puritans escaping persecution, then they would travel to New England. There was little reason for them to go anywhere else. This was why he turned to another group, and to explain why he did, I want to turn to the West Wing. Pop culture explains all. The following is from Season 1, Episode 11, Lord John Marbury. The episode centres on a confrontation between India and Pakistan, and this is the interpretation of events from the British ambassador. You're all frightened. As well you should be. Not since the Protestant-Catholic wars in the 16th century has Western society known anything remotely comparable to the subcontinent's religious malevolence. Uh, to a lesser observer, the intensity of the emotional frenzy is so illogical as to border on mass psychosis, but as has been said by kings and queens, uh, I am not a lesser observer. We haven't really been covering what exactly has been happening on the European continent, but it is something we're going to have to spend some time with. Following the Reformation, Europe was revolutionary. Some countries switch to Protestantism quite easily, such as some of the German states. Others stayed staunchly Catholic, such as Spain. England had its share of issues, but it wound up a Protestant country eventually, without too much trouble. France would find things a lot harder. There was a large minority of French Calvinist Protestants, known as the Huguenots, which caused continual trouble throughout the 16th century. 
The trouble began almost immediately following the Reformation. There was a persecution until eventually, in 1562, something known as the Wars of Religion broke out. The war lasted, in various phases, for almost 40 years. The situation began to get out of control during the reign of Henry III, in opposition to his pro-Protestant policies. He was the last in his line, and had a problem finding an heir, eventually choosing Henry, the King of Navarre, a Protestant. This inflamed the Catholics, and the Holy League grew in power. Henry III tried to mollify them, but this was unsuccessful. He was assassinated in 1589. This passed the throne to Henry IV, who founded the Bourbon dynasty. If the French Catholics were unhappy about the heir being Protestant, you can just imagine their reaction to having a Protestant monarch. Eventually, the wars were brought to a close by the Edict of Nantes in April 1598. The deal was that the Protestants would be allowed to keep their freedom of conscience. They would be permitted to worship openly anywhere other than Paris, and would keep their military positions. In exchange, Henry IV converted to Catholicism. This was the way the situation lasted until the civil wars returned during the reign of Louis XIII. The Huguenots were defeated, and a peace was established with the Peace of Arles in 1629. The Huguenots would retain most of their rights, such as freedom of conscience, but lost their military advantage, and their political position was greatly weakened. This was not appealing to a great many of the French, and was understood immediately by Heath as a possible source of settlers, just as the Puritans had turned New England into a base of English civilization with a Dutch element, he felt the same could be done in Carolina, but with a French twist. This could have been to the immense benefit of the colony, but the government of Charles I had a remarkable ability to shoot itself in the foot. The Privy Council decreed that only those acknowledging the Church of England would be allowed to settle. Instead, the Huguenots would not travel to Carolina, but would remain in France until the Edicts of Nantes was retracted in 1685 by Louis XIV. In the next few years, some 400,000 mostly urban Huguenots would leave France, travelling to England, Prussia, the Netherlands, and of course, America. It is interesting to think the effect of this loss of urban population had on France, and how a more urban France would have handled the oncoming Industrial Revolution. The Huguenots would be a persecuted minority throughout the 18th century, until during the latter part of the century, public opinion finally turned against the repression. Religious freedom would be finally assured by the French Revolution, but we're getting rather off-topic, back to Carolina. The process of attracting settlers to Carolina was made immensely more difficult by this. The Huguenots were the best option, and with them no longer a possibility, 
Heath was forced to scour England in an effort to find anybody willing to settle in his territory. But Carolina was simply not an attractive proposition. Religious dissidents would travel to New England, those who wanted land would travel to Virginia. There wasn't much incentive to travel anywhere else. So while thousands of people were emigrating to the New World, Heath was able to gather 40. Yep, out of the thousands upon thousands of people travelling, 40 were willing to take a chance on Carolina. And even this went wrong. Heath transported them to Jamestown in Virginia, but he was then unable to secure passage south to Carolina. The potential settlers then split, some deciding to stay in Virginia, while others headed home. But nobody went to Carolina. This was as close as Heath got. He became frustrated and preoccupied with affairs back in England. In 1638, he transferred the rights to Carolina to Lord Maltravers. Now, things really slowed down as the English Civil War broke out. The colonies became less important in general. The number of migrants reduced across the board, and there was no interest at all in Carolina for at least a decade. Once the Commonwealth was founded in 1649, the area suddenly had potential. We've dealt with the Puritan colonies in the north, which sided with Parliament, but the more aristocratic south was royalist, in particular our old friend Governor Berkeley. The area to the south was regarded with envious eyes, and slowly and surely, plans were drawn up about what to do with this land to the south, variously called Roanoke, Carolina, or South Virginia. In the 1650s, the process really began to get underway, with grants being made and people moving into the area. It must be noted that this wasn't considered a rebellion against Virginia. It wasn't anything of the sort, rather the area of North Carolina was simply considered the frontier region, a vague term which reappears throughout the American story. Land-hungry settlers moved there. There wasn't anything particularly novel about it. It seems that by the early 1660s, over 500 settlers had colonised North Carolina. It was in fact so large that it was beginning to become an administrative nuisance, but the state of affairs was about to be altered in the region due to events back in Europe. Perhaps, had things been allowed to continue, Carolina would have just become a region of Virginia. However, the monarchy was restored. When Charles II came to the throne in 1660, he was indebted to a number of influential figures who had secured his return, and who needed to be handsomely rewarded. So, with this in mind, it isn't at all surprising that in 1663, a new charter was given for Carolina, except it was now spelt with an I, making it Carolina, in the name of eight proprietors. This immediately sets up the main conflict in the politics of Carolina. There would always be a battle made up of those who were themselves settled in the region and outside pressures, such as the royalty. This is clear from the wording of the Royal Charter of Carolina, for example, it included something known as the Bishop of Durham Clause, 
which is a bit of a weird way to define power, so I'm just going to quote Colonial North Carolina, a history, to explain it. Quote, This provision gave the proprietors as much power in Carolina as the Bishop of Durham had in England. As feudal lords of his frontier county, the bishop could collect taxes and raise an army. He was also expected to protect England from invasions by the Scots. Similarly, the proprietors were expected to manage and protect the province in the interests of England. End quote. This makes it appear as though the proprietors had total control in the province, but it was countered by another element in the system, the following clause in the Charter, that no law should be enacted without, quote, the advice, assent, and approbation of the freemen of the said province, or of the greater part of them, or of their delegates or deputies. End quote. This indicates that there was to be an assembly for the proprietors to call. This democratic assembly would represent the people, while the governor was appointed from back in England. There was another very interesting point included in the Charter. It was decided that while the Anglican Church of England was to be the established church, exactly as was the case back in England, there was also to be religious toleration. Other Protestant groups, such as the Quakers, would flourish there, making it a real alternative to Virginia and the Puritan colonies of the North. It is also deeply ironic that this clause was included, considering a rejection of religious toleration was exactly what halted the development of the province over 30 years previously. Powers reserved for the king in the charter were one-fourth of gold and silver which were found in the province, as well as the usual royal customs and duties. The proprietors could appoint judges, magistrates and officials. They could issue titles, but not the same titles as existed in England. They could, as I've mentioned, raise an army as well as forts. The colonists were made naturalised English citizens, and so enjoyed all the benefits that came with it. There was also a provision that if they became involved in a legal dispute, it would be permissible for them to be tried only by a court in either Carolina, England or Wales. This is where I want to bring things to a close for this week. The next thing to do in the narrative would be to properly introduce our eight proprietors, but I think that will work better as an introduction next time rather than an addition to the end. And it also wraps up this episode nicely as beginning with the creation of the first Carolina and ending with the Royal Charter creating the second Carolina. It's all very poetic, don't you think? If you've enjoyed today's episode, remember there are many ways that you can support the show. The simplest is to leave a review on iTunes, helping to get word out about the show. You can also sign up for our membership program. Just go to the website and click on the PayPal subscription button. You can continue the conversation on social media, like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the history of podcast, and follow me on Twitter at History Jamie. Feel free to send me an email. The address is the history of podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.